Morning, all. Uh, the second Bible reading today will be coming from Acts chapter 17, verses 22 to 34. And on the pi- uh, Pew Bible I've got, it's on page 1076. And it's up on the wall. Paul then stood up in the meeting at the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human designs and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will come with, sorry, when he will come judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered and others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. And this is God's word. Oh, welcome, everybody. As Chris said, my name's Chris. Uh, I'm a final year Bible College student at the Presbyterian Theological College in Box Hill. Uh, and my wife, Ruth, and our two daughters uh, are placed here for this year, which we've been loving. So if I haven't met you already, it would be good to meet you after the service. Um, I have noticed on uh, a couple of the outlines that you received on the door that the points start from number five. Uh, Please be assured that I don't have four other points hidden anywhere in this sermon. Uh, So if you've got one of those outlines, it starts at one and finishes at about four, I suppose. Well, let's uh, come to God in prayer before we look at his word. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a God who reveals yourself to us. Lord, thank you uh, that the way you do that, Lord is through uh, the Lord Jesus, your Son. And thank you, Father, that we can know about him and about you in your word. Father, give us uh, ears to hear and hearts uh, to respond to your word as we hear it this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, I don't know about you, uh, but I've learnt that there are just some things that you can't get wrong in life. Uh, One big moment uh, when I learnt that lesson was about 12 years ago or so 
When I was uh, on clinical placement, I studied eyes. I was an orthoptist, like Jess Sirawira was. Um, I learned that lesson when I was on placement in San Diego at a children's hospital over there. Now, when you work in healthcare, uh, healthcare professionals will tell you that everything hangs on getting the patient right. You know, knowing who they are, uh, what their problem is, and what they're looking to get out of the consultation. Now, in San Diego, there was a particular 10-year-old child that I saw at the clinic. And there were many things I got right about this consultation. Uh, for example, I got the child's name right, Alex. All my visual assessments on Alex, no problem. But the moment I came to grief was uh, when I began to ask the mother, who was also in the room, a few more questions regarding Alex's eye health. I asked, so how long has she had this problem for? Does it get worse when she's tired? Well, as I began to ask some of these questions, Alex suddenly looks at me with an expression of horror and interrupts me with three devastating words. I'm a boy. Uh, to my great shame, I had missed something on the referral letter. I was confused by outward appearances, and as a result, I had made the horrific mistake of thinking this young boy in front of me was, in fact, a girl. Now, although I had got a few things right with Alex in this consultation, I had got something fundamental to his identity wrong. And there are just some things you can't get wrong, aren't there? Now, it's one thing to get a patient wrong in a consultation like that, but as we're going to see in our passage this morning, it's quite another thing to get the true and living God wrong. You see, in our passage, while the Athenians, they get a few notions about the true God kind of vaguely correct, but they get the fundamentals about him wrong. And for the Apostle Paul, this was something he knew had to be corrected because he knew a day is coming when the true God will actually judge the ignorance of humanity by his appointed judge. And therefore, Paul knew that everything hangs on getting God right. So as we look at this passage, we'll consider what it means to get God right by looking at what Paul says about who God is and what he wants. And then we'll consider how the audience responds to Paul's speech and what we uh, can gain from it today. Now, at this point in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul finds himself in the city of Athens. Uh, Athens was a very religious place full of shrines, temples, idols. Uh, one Roman satirist of that day even said that it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a man. But Athens was also the intellectual uh, and cultural capital of the Roman Empire. If you wanted a good philosophical debate, Athens was the place to get it. Look at Luke's own little assessment of Athens in verse 21. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing 
but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. They were a bit of, they were some gas baggers. They loved to talk. So as you might expect, it's not long before Paul finds himself engaged in a hearty debate with some of these Athenian philosophers whom he had met in the marketplace, verse 18. These men had heard him proclaiming the resurrected Jesus, and they thought that sounded like a really interesting new topic for discussion. So interesting, in fact, that Paul was invited to speak uh, to the esteemed meeting of the Areopagus, a council of Athenian men uh, who were considered guardians of the city's religion, morals, and education. And now, a few weeks ago, some of us at college took a, a preaching subject. That's what uh, Alastair Payne was here when he came to preach. That's what he was here for. And during that conference and subject, we thought a lot about how to write sermons. We considered the need to begin a sermon with a really kind of gripping hook that introduces the theme of what you want to say, but also piques the interest of your listeners. Well, consider the way Paul introduces his sermon here. You see, with tact and precision, Paul manages to tap into his audience's self-confessed ignorance of the divine being by pointing out their willingness to even worship or pay homage to an unknown God. I mean, look at verses 22 to 23. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. And so we come to the first big point or topic of Paul's uh, speech. Who is this unknown God? Who is God? And the first thing that Paul wants to make clear about the true God is that he is the creator and Lord of all things. You can almost imagine Paul standing up in front of all these distinguished men and just saying, gentlemen, men of Athens, just stand up for a moment, turn around and just look out on the amazing scenery surrounding Athens, the majestic mountains. Look at the birds flying in the sky. The true God, the God you're ignorant of, he made it all. It didn't come about by chance. There was a personal creator that brought everything into being just by a simple word. Oh, and that personal creator is actually Lord of all he's made. He's the boss. Look at what Paul says in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Now, Paul's Greek audience assumed the gods could be confined or contained in either kind of little shrines or big temples. But not the true God, says Paul. You can't contain the creator in the creations of his creatures. We don't make a place for God to live. It's actually the reverse. He has made a place for us to live. 
The second thing that Paul wants to make clear about the true God is that he's the sustainer of all people. This point flows on from Paul's first point, the God who created the world, who is Lord over the world, actively sustains the people of the world. Paul's saying to the Athenians, don't get this point around the wrong way either. The true God doesn't get looked after by us. No, no, it's actually we that get looked after by him. Look at verse 25. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. That last breath that you just took, the pulse that you can feel as you rest your neck on your hand, the food you're about to have, the clothes you're wearing, the house you're going back to, the true God provides it all. Now, this is big for Paul's Greek audience. You see, the Greeks treated their gods much like glorified domestic pets. They built little shrines for them or temples. They kept them happy with food sacrifices and other material things. But yet that way of thinking, says Paul, is just wrong about the true God. God is our creator. We depend on him. He doesn't depend on us. So Paul has let his audience know that the true God is the creator and the sustainer. And now he lets them know that the true God is the father of all humanity. Now, when I say father, I don't mean father in a redemptive sense, uh, where God is spoken of in the New Testament as the heavenly father of those who trust Christ, but father in a creation sense. You see, Paul makes clear from verses 26 to 28 that God made us all, and thus we are all his offspring in some sense. And the true God doesn't want to remain unknown to his created beings. You'll notice here that the purpose of God creating people and ordering their times and places in the history of the world is actually so that they might seek him, that they might find him, be in relationship with him. Look at verses 26 to 28. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the times and places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him, and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. God does not want to remain distant from us. God's desire is that people would reach out for him, seek out relationship with him. But in our sin, we don't do that. Instead of embracing the true God, Humanity embraces ignorant, small, and distorted views of God. As members of humanity, we so easily get God wrong. Some of us reduce God to a literal man-made idol that we presume to control by offering the right food, sacrifices, or prayers. 
Some of us reduce God to just an intellectual concept that we can hold at a distance and critique and dismiss where necessary. Some of us reduce God to just an understanding mate who gets that we're generally good and will turn a blind eye when we fail or do something wrong. Even church-going people can limit God to the confines of a bluestone building thinking they only need to acknowledge him once a week to keep him happy. Though the true God is not far from us, we reach out for and embrace all these small and distorted notions of God. And you see, this is a big tragedy because it's actually only in relationship with the real God that we discover our true identity and find real meaning in life. And to drive that point home, Paul even employs a couple of popular Greek, uh, famed Greek thinkers that tap into that idea. Look at what he says in verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Uh, Last month, you might remember, we had a, a church luncheon and during this luncheon, as I was talking to another person, I noticed my one-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Esther, who you often hear at every point of the service before uh, kids' church, I noticed my one-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Esther, uh, was trying to negotiate her way around the tables with food on them amidst the sort of milling people about the tables. Now, Esther wasn't really watching where she was going. She doesn't usually do that. Instead, she's sort of walked around just trying to reach out to grab my leg just to, you know, get her bearings, to orient her, but not really look. But you see, instead of grabbing my leg, some of your, you parents out there will remember your children doing this, I imagine. Instead of grabbing my leg, she was actually grabbing the legs of numerous other men. Maybe you had her grab your leg, I don't know. <laughs> she was grabbing their legs thinking that they were mine. And you see, when she realised she was hanging on to the leg of a stranger, she would suddenly recoil, let go, and actually then repeat the same thing again. You see, it was only when Esther finally wrapped her arms around my leg and realised, yes, she was with Daddy, that she knew she was where she was supposed to be. You see, God has made people for relationship with him. We may reach out blindly grabbing the legs of other versions of God or replacements of him in this life, but it's actually only when we embrace the true God as he has revealed himself to be that we are where we are supposed to be. Paul is making known to the Athenians the unknown God here. He is the creator, the sustainer, the father of us all. Well, Paul has told the Athenians who God is. Let us uh, consider now the way in which he goes about telling them what the true God wants, what he commands of his creatures. You see, because everything hangs on getting God right, it's not enough for Paul that people just essentially know about him. 
To get God right, people also need to know what God wants of them personally. And it's at this point that Paul gets straight to the bottom line of his talk. He essentially says, in light of the coming judgment, the true God commands everyone to repent. Now, we've already seen that God wants relationship with the people he's made. Well, now Paul tells us that that relationship comes through repentance. Look at verses 29 to 31. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's designing and skill. Uh, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this, to all men by raising him from the dead. Because the true God is the creator, the the sustainer, the father of life, it's just plain absurd to think as the Athenians did that he could be reduced to the likes of a shiny object made by one of his creatures. Now, when Paul says that in the past God overlooked this ignorance. He's not saying that God just turned a blind eye to that sort of rejection of his rule, but simply that God had not brought the judgment on such an ignorance and rejection yet. But now, says Paul, the judgment day has been set and the judge has been appointed. So it's time for repentance. For all people to turn from clinging to their wrong versions of God, clinging to their small and distorted ideas of him, and embrace him as he is, living under his rule. Now, in Greek thought, the idea of an afterlife, particularly a physical afterlife, was just ridiculous. In fact, It's interesting, many Greeks probably would have thought about the afterlife much like many of your neighbours might be thinking about it. Not real, so no real judgement. But notice how Paul challenges that idea. First, by referring to Jesus, not by his name here, but simply as the man, Paul is making clear that God's divine judge is actually also human. And therefore, the resurrection of the man, Jesus Christ, isn't just proof that God has made him ruler and judge of all, although he has certainly done that. It's actually also proof that human existence doesn't just stop at death. We, too, will be raised to meet our maker at the judgment. Uh, When I was working in the city at an eye clinic there, uh, I would occasionally talk to my friend Sally about God over lunch. I remember once we were out at lunch with a couple of other co-workers and uh, Sally said to me, Chris, imagine if you were to die today and you finally realised that there is nothing after this life. 
How do you think you would feel knowing that your whole life as a Christian has been a waste? said that in the nicest possible way, by the way. Um, You know, well, Sally, I said, I'd feel like an, an absolute idiot because I've thrown my lot in with Jesus. But if I can, can I just flip that around on you for a moment? Sally, imagine if you were to die and you suddenly stood before the true and living God who you had been willingly reducing and rejecting your whole life. Sally, how do you think you would feel in that moment? You see, Paul's speech here is a warning not to let that dreadful scenario become your reality by getting God wrong. You see, there will be a day when every person will be raised to meet the Lord Jesus on the day of judgment. And the Bible tells us that those who turn to God in repentance and trusted his son and judge, they'll be welcomed into eternal relationship with the true and living God. But those who refuse to recognize the true God and reject his rule they'll be swept away in judgment. So God's call to repentance actually must be taken seriously right now. Everything hangs on getting God right. Well, it's clear from the passage that the the suggestion of the resurrection of the dead is just too much for many of his Greek audience to handle. And so someone makes the decision to turn Paul's mic off and bring his speech to an end. So let's consider the response of Paul's audience to his message about the true God. Well, as Paul steps down from the podium, we see a threefold response to his message, don't we? Some people laugh it off, they sneer. Some people put it off, wanting a bit more information. But some people follow Paul off stage, believe and turn to the true God. Look at verses 32 to 34. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and a woman named Damaris and a number of others. So Paul makes clear in his speech that the God unknown to the Athenians is not someone they can keep getting wrong. Everything hangs on getting him right. He's the creator, the sustainer, the father of humanity, oh, and he's also the judge who calls everyone to repentance throughout history. So what are we going to draw from Paul's speech today? Well, let me suggest two things that you can do. Firstly, take heed of Paul's message here. But secondly, specific for Christians, take note of Paul's method. So take heed of Paul's message first. That's the first and foremost 
thing that this, this uh, sermon reminds us of is the importance of knowing the true God as he is. Creator, sustainer, father, judge. And it reminds us that the God who commands the Athenians to repent 2,000 years ago is actually the same God commanding us to repent today. You see, Jesus, God's appointed judge, actually still reigns in heaven as Lord of all. And the day when he returns as judge of the world is actually still to come. So in many respects, we're in a similar situation to the Athenians. Be ready for that day. Don't be like some of the members of the Areopagus who simply laughed off the message. And don't continue to be like some of the members of the audience who simply put it off. They said they wanted to hear from Paul again, but I'm guessing that opportunity never actually came. Because straight after this account, we read that Paul leaves Athens and he leaves Athens for good. Now, it is actually reasonable and right to want to know more about God before you believe in him. But the call to repent is something that you can't keep putting off forever. Do what Dionysius and Damaris do and repent. Everything hangs on getting God right and to get God right is to submit to him as your Lord and creator and to trust in his appointed judge, the Lord Jesus. By his death and resurrection, Jesus forgives your sin of reducing and rejecting God and brings you into a glorious relationship with the true God. And so on that day when Jesus actually returns in judgment, you won't just meet him as your judge, you'll actually meet him as your saviour as well. And that is good news. But there's another application here specific for Christians, I think, and that is to take note of Paul's method. Because we are living in a society that has increasingly confused notions of who God is. And if we're going to help other people get God right, well, we, like Paul, need to think carefully about how we proclaim God and the gospel of his son in both a faithful way, but a way that people will understand and resonate with. You see, for example, Paul actually took time to analyse the culture he was in and think hard about a way to get the gospel in there. Paul didn't use words that were unfamiliar to people, but still retained core gospel truths. Paul was actually happy to employ secular writings or philosophy where it affirmed God's truth. Paul took the time to first correct misunderstandings about God rather than just moving immediately to people's need for the atonement. You see, for people to feel the horror of their sin, they actually need to know the one that they've sinned against. Then won't Jesus' offer of forgiveness be all the more sweeter? You see, Paul thought hard about all of this because at the core of his desires was that Jesus might get the worship that so many Athenians were squandering 
on worthless idols. Or pray that we would become people like Paul, so eager to see people give their worship to the true God that we actually take the time to think hard about ways we can speak the gospel into the lives of other parents at school drop-off, the blokes at your footy club, the Vietnamese baker you have conversations with every few days when you get your bread. Take heed of Paul's message. Take note of his method. Well, let me just finish by taking you to one other moment in time uh, when a lone Christian voice proclaims the resurrected Jesus amid modern thinkers of our day. Now, this happened back in 2013 uh, during an episode of Q&A. If you know that uh, show on the ABC, panel discussion. Um, so this episode happened uh, against the background of what was called the Festival of Dangerous Ideas happening in Sydney. Uh, Wikipedia explains that festival like this. It was created to bring leading thinkers and culture creators from around Australia and the world to discuss and debate some of the most important issues of our time. So, you know, a bit of an Areopagus uh, simile there, people discussing big things and philosophies, ideas. Well, Peter Hitchens, who's a uh, Christian writer and political thinker, he was invited onto this, uh, into this festival, but also onto the program of Q&A with about three other panellists from that festival. Now, the last question on Q&A uh, by an audience member was this. Which so-called dangerous idea do you think would have the potential to change the world for the better? Uh, the first panellist, Dan Savage, said population control. There are too many people on this planet. The second panellist, Jermaine Greer, said absolute freedom. The freedom to make choices, and that includes the freedom to make mistakes. Well, Peter Hitchens' turn came along and he said this, the most dangerous idea in human history remains the belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and rose from the dead. That is the most dangerous idea you'll ever encounter. Well, Tony Jones, the host, wasn't letting him get off the hook that easily, so he pushed back a bit. Why dangerous? Peter Hitchens says because it alters all of human behaviour and all our responsibilities. It turns the universe from a meaningless chaos into a designed place in which there's justice and there is hope. And therefore, we all have a duty to discover the nature of that justice and work towards that hope. It alters us all. If we reject it, it alters us all. It's incredibly dangerous. That's why so many people turn against it. Well, I don't know about you, but I think Hitchens' uh, public proclamation of the resurrected Jesus uh, stands as a reminder that while ideas and philosophies come and go, Paul's message about the true God and the need for repentance continues to this day. Everything hangs on getting God right. Recognise who God is. 
Turn to him in repentance and trust your life to his risen judge. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you uh, are the living and true God. Thank you that in your love for us, you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus. Father, you did not need to do that. You owed us nothing, uh, and we depend on you for everything. Father, help us to respond rightly to you in repentance, Lord, in continual trust of the Lord Jesus who makes us right with you. Help us to live for him this day. And Father, we pray all these things in his name. Amen.